you know, that's why, you know, I said, said a bit when we started talking that, 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 you know, again, it's another part of the storytelling brain that we, that we are running multiple plots at once, usually, um, as people. You know, we have these goals and, and, and the goals um, are incredibly important to us and the goals are products of our character and the obstacles, too, are, you know, are, are things that we try and overcome and, 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 and we become better people by figuring out how to overcome these obstacles. We become more heroic when we figure out how to do that. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with Will Storr, who is an award-winning writer and author. Your journalism has appeared in The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The New Yorker, The New York Times, just to name a few. Uh, you've been a ghostwriter for books that have sold more than two million copies. You're also the author of six critically acclaimed books, including the Sunday Times bestseller, The Science of Storytelling, which frankly is what we're mostly going to be discussing in depth today. And Will, given you're on the other side of the pond, tremendously grateful for the fact that you're taking time on what would be your Friday evening to talk shop and talk storytelling with me and my audience. So thank you so much. No, thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to diving into it. Uh, so the interesting thing about this conversation is that you're actually here right now because of Amazon's algorithm. <laughs> I was doing a deep dive into some other authors that I was really interested in reading their work. And of course, the deeper we get into AI, the more it knows us better than ourselves. And all of a sudden, recommended reading, I see this book called Science of Storytelling. How have I never heard of this? What is this? This is perfect because I just finished an interview with Christopher Vogler, who is the writer of The Writer's Journey, which we're going to be talking a lot about today because I've also been diving into the mythology of Joseph Campbell. So it makes logical sense that you would then come up in the, the Amazon algorithm. But here's the first piece that stuck with me almost immediately. And this is where I want to start. The science 
of storytelling. That's a word that I think could potentially trigger a lot of the people that listen to this that are in my audience. And they're like, um, excuse me, story is not a science. Storytelling is an art form. We are creatives. We are artists. It is creative expression. So let's just get started with why do you call your book the science of storytelling? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it implies that I'm suggesting there's like an algorithm, like a formula for storytelling. That, that That's not what I'm doing. It's not like a scientific uh, <laughs> yeah, ad A, B and C and you get a bestseller. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that science is, you know, has, has over the last sort of 10, 20 years, especially become really the best um, lens through which to kind of address the puzzle of storytelling. Because, um, you know, there's this huge amount of evidence, um, which is now uh, available that the human brain is the original storyteller and the greatest storyteller. I mean, that's what the that's what a human brain is. A human brain takes all the confusing and chaotic inputs of reality and turns it into a story. And the story is you, is you, you know, puts you in the middle of the world and sets you on these great goals. And the goals are the goals of your life are your plots. And you go up and down and you learn things. And you know, and the, the reason that we tell stories in the way that we do um in in the form of movies or plays or whatever the form might be. Is because we're mimicking the way the brain remixes reality. I, I, I think it's a perfectly legitimate, and actually, I would argue the best sort of lens through which to um, address the puzzle of storytelling. And that's one of the things that really gravitated uh, this book to me, other than, of course, the Amazon algorithm, uh, is that I, too, have been fascinated for years with applying science and psychology and human behavior to the creative process. I've spent years learning uh, specifically about the athlete's mindset and goal setting and how you can apply that to the creative mindset. And the intersection of those two is fascinating. So I'm glad that you brought up this idea that it's not about, well, here's a formula. I now have the science of a great story. Because that's funny. I almost think that that's the direction that some of the the reworkings of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey is like, oh, you just you have these beats and every story is going to hit these beats and it's going to be a fantastic story. And instead, you're saying, let's understand the neurology, the neuroscience of the human brain and how we tell stories and how that can apply if we're a writer to tell fictional stories, which we have writers that are listening and storytellers that do that as a craft and as a living that are listening today. But I'm so much more interested in in the bigger picture of how am I the writer of my story and how all of this psychology intersects. But where I do want to start, just so we kind of have a, a general foundation of language between science and art and formula and otherwise, is that we have the story structure of the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. And for anybody that wants to learn more about that, I talked to Chris Vogler about his book, The Writer's Journey, which is the contemporary Hollywood version of this. But then we have Aristotle. But then we have people like Christopher Booker, and then we have people like you, and everybody's got all these different story structures. Yeah. So let's just start with a foundational vocabulary of what you mean by the formula or the act structure of a basic story and how you approach it. Okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, as you say, I mean, since the days of Aristotle, people have been looking for the kind of the secret of storytelling. And when you read these books, what you'll tend to find is that somebody comes along and says, oh, I found it. I found the answer. And so there are various answers to that to that, to that that question. You know, surely the most influential, as you say, is Joseph Campbell, especially Campbell um, translated very helpfully by Vogler, because Campbell to read raw is pretty, pretty hard. It's work. a challenge. It is not an yeah. easy read. <laughs> Vogler did a wonderful job of, of, of 
of making it you know accessible and and, and actually readable like it's a well-written book um and then you know more recently that's john york's into the woods is very influential over here in the uk and christopher booker of course seven basic plots and what they tend to do is have this this you must do this kind of formula i don't think there is a must do this kind of formula i i you know that all, all of those kind of um solutions to storytelling tend to be kind of roughly similar they have differences but they're roughly similar um and, and what i think those um structures are really the equivalent of a three and a half minute pop song you know the, the, you know they're the, like pop music ha- has you know uh, could kind of evolved o- over the years to have this kind of ideal of what's the stickiest most infectious most popularly um satisfying version of a pop song and that will have certain qualities like it'll be roughly three and a half minutes long and it'll have i don't know verse verse chorus verse or whatever whatever that thing might be and so to say oh um you have to have these qualities you have to follow the 22 steps of joseph campbell's hero's journey or you have to have five acts for the midpoint or whatever it is or you haven't got a story is to say that the only the only the only true song is a Ariana Grande song and there's no other kinds of songs. It's, it, it's kind of ridiculous, really. So, you know, in my book, I do I do present a version, uh, what I think is a successful version of this, uh, this kind of five-act structure. But, but but as I say in the book, this is this completely voluntary thing and, it, and it's certainly not compulsory and, it, and it's certainly not true that if you don't follow these rules, then you won't have, then you're not going to have a successful story. It's just that, you know, th- this is the pattern that, 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 you know, from including Shakespeare, um, that most of the most successful, most satisfying stories kind of actually have. Yeah. So again, I just I wanted to make sure to to make it very clear that you and I are both on the same page. There isn't a formula. This isn't yeah. a science. It's more about understanding the science. And this title would be way worse than yours. But <laughs> understanding the science of human behavior and yeah. character development and our need for achieving goals and that being part of our plot line so we can tell stories. That's a really yeah, shitty version of the title, but it's a to me a better understanding of what you mean by the science of it. Absolutely, Zach. Yeah, like, but but also the 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 evolutionary history of storytelling. You know, like evolution psychologists have done some incredible work looking at why we tell stories in the first place. And so, and once you figure that out, that of course is massively helpful to your to your storytelling. You know, when you when you figure out you know why why we evolved these storytelling brains um why why humans are so you know so, so um addicted to story why story surrounds us so so you know finding out this stuff of course is gold i think if you're a, if you if you're a storyteller yeah and that's one of the the big questions that i've had for years and years and years is not just how can i be a good storyteller but i always ask the bigger question why why do I care about telling stories? Why is it so important to me? Because in a creative field, and we're going to talk more about goal attainment later and fulfillment and stories and whatnot, um, but it's really important to me as a creative to make sure that I'm connected to the stories that I'm telling, where I can do the same job with the same tools and the same hours and the same pay. One is a dream job. One is a nightmare. And it's all about the quality of the story that I want to tell. And I've learned that's just ubiquitous amongst all creatives in the form of expression, whether it's music music or painting or whatever. They're all versions of stories. So I want to get to the big question and just dig right in. Why? Why are stories so important to us as human beings? Well, stories are how we navigate reality. Stories are how we understand ourselves and and, and how to survive in the world. You know, know, all living things, uh, as we know, thanks to Charles Darwin, want to survive and reproduce. That's the basic you know, uh, urge that kind of drives all living things. Um, and of course, humans are no exception, um, but all living things have different 
different strategies, different, different ways that they survive and reproduce. Obviously, our ways are different from a worm's ways or a fish's ways or a tree's ways. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the, the human way of survival and reproduction um, is, is very much um, group focused. We, we have, um, we're a species of ape. You know, we're not like an ape or evolved from an ape-like creature. We, we are an ape. Uh, but we were obviously a very strange ape, not like the other apes. We've got language. Um, and so, you know, we evolve language to help us um, form successful, highly cooperative groups. And, and, that, and that's why we've so successful compared to the other animals, because we, we, we've worked out how to coordinate and divide la- and divide labor, um, uh, you, you know, to, to exist in these kind of two spheres at once. We, we exist as individuals, but we also exist as members of tribes. Uh, and so, so, so you need language to make that work properly. You need language to tell stories about how ha- ha- how to do that. Um, and so, you know, the current kind of consensus in, in in academia is that we evolved language in order to gossip, and you know, and we think of gossip as being kind of like um, tabloid talking about Meghan Markle or whoever, you know. Uh, but 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 gossip is is fundamental to the human condition. Gossip is, the, you know, the, the, the early, if you want to trace story back to its absolute DNA, you'll find gossip. And gossip is a way of um, keeping groups working together. Because when you gossip about people, you're figuring out who are they? Is this a good person? Is it a bad person? And if it's a good person, we'll treat them as a hero in the, in the group. If it's a bad person, we'll punish them. Um, and 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 that's how you police the trial. That's, that's how you keep everybody working together because nobody wants to be the villain in the gossip. Everybody wants to be the good guy or the good gal. <laughs> so, so 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 you orient yourself towards being a hero, not a villain. And and and, and so that's how um, you know for millions of years our tribes police themselves without a police force, without a, a legal system, without prisons. Um, we swapped gossip and we treated people well or harshly depending on how they manifested you know in, in in the general gossip of the tribe you know additionally to that that you know people who study gossip um say that there are kind of basically two 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 functions of it the first one is reputational which is what i've just been talking about we figure out who's good who's bad uh, and we treat them as heroes or villains um you know according to that but the other way they they said the form of gossip called strategy learning gossip so if you think about gossip um you, you you're telling tales about this person something really bad happened to this person or something really good happened to this person. And the next question is, well, you know, so, so, you know, what do they do to make that happen? So that's, so, so in that way, we're kind of working at how the world in our, in our tribe works. Who have I, who have I got to be in order to get what I want out of the world and who, and who, and you know, what do I have to do? You know, what's my strategies for survival? So, 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 you know, that, that's, that, that's really why, I think a lot of us are riveted to stories. Like if you if you if you show somebody that 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 basic story pattern of a person pursuing a goal and meeting an obstacle and trying to figure out how to get around that obstacle in order to achieve their goal, we're immediately interested. Like James Bond, for example, is an example where millions of people around the world just riveted by how is James Bond going to get out of this crazy you know situation, even though they're never going to. Um, uh, meet the obstacles that James Bond meets. They're never going to be like dangling over a pit of sharks or whatever, or chased by a you know Soviet gunman or whatever. But still, we can't help it. Our brains are programmed to be interested in that simple pattern, the pursuit, the the the, the meeting of obstacles uh, in, in in the way of goals. Um, so 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 you know that's why we are addicted to stories. You know, part it's partly because we're interested in the, the, we're always interested in the moral nature of other people because that's what we've evolved to be interested in to keep our tribes functional and also to figure out how the world works, to figure out how do we get what we want and overcome 
obstacles. It's fascinating because it just helped me clarify in about three sentences why I'm obsessed with being a podcaster. Because <laughs> this is essentially you and I gossiping and me better understanding your vision of the world and your vision of reality and how you were able to accomplish the things that you did and better understand how others did so I can accomplish similar goals, which is just I didn't even realize is like evolutionarily hardwired. And what I'm doing as a podcaster with a microphone via remote connection via Zoom is just the 21st century version of what we've literally been doing for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years. So that in and of itself is fascinating. The part that I want to go into next is talking about this idea of understanding who's the hero and who's the villain. Because that can be very simple or it can be very complicated because how mm. we define a hero versus a villain is subjective, which is part of the fascinating process that you went through to come up with the idea for this book. You were studying the question, how is it that intelligent people believe crazy things? which is a larger portion of your work. So talk a little bit more about your understanding of the subjectivity of good versus evil and how people will just believe the craziest things and how that led to you deciding you wanted to go down the path to write this book. Yeah, so so, so that was the question that I pursued in a book that was called The Heretics in the UK and Australia, um, America, so it was called The Unpersuadables. And so, yeah, that was looking at, as you say, how is it that smart people end up being crazy things. And, and the answer that I came to there was, was I mean, that's how I came across all this science about the storytelling brain. Is that, and that, that, that is, as, as Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist, says, that the brain is not a logic processor, it's a story processor. So we're not programmed to figure out what's true in the world that's that's not what the brain is specialized for the, the brain is specialized for you know i call it a hero maker uh, who, do, who do i have to be in order to be to, to to seem heroic in front of my tribe um and so that and, and that's that generally speaking that's that's who we become so 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 we don't really believe what's true we, we're much more likely to believe what we what we feel we're supposed to be what we're supposed to believe in the context of our tribe you know like I, it's quite difficult for us westerners to, to to sometimes to see the tribe because in the west we're very individualist so we're very me focused compared to uh, people around the world but 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 you know it's still true that of course we're very tribal most obviously in the shape of politics you know left and right republican democrat um you know tory labor whatever it might be but but most of us are you know uh, members of multiple tribes um we might be in a music tribe or a you know a, 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 the, the the company we work for will be a tribe um the hobby group that we're a member of will be a tribe so um you know we have all these kind of multiple identities and you know the, the, the generally speaking the tribe it takes what we believe not the truth so, so that's how really smart people can end up believing crazy things because they have these human brains that aren't interested in truth. They're interested in their own personal state of heroism. So this could become a, a much larger question, and I want to keep it contained because I realize we could talk about this for hours and hours. But I want to go one layer deeper with specifics, which what I think can be a very triggering question but at the same time, I think that if we're looking at it from an academic standpoint, it's really interesting in understanding how our brains are wired. And this is something I know that you've researched. How is it that people with all the information that we have, the legitimate evidence that's in front of us, really and truly believe that the Holocaust didn't happen? Well, as I say, like we, we tend to believe the things that make us feel good. We tend to believe the things that make us feel heroic. And so as part of my research into for the heretics or the unpersuadables, um, I, I um, spent some time undercover with some neo-Nazis. Um, and, and they're not like um, like internet, not, they're real neo-Nazis with Nazi tattoos and things. They're, like, they're the real deal. And so, yeah, I went to um, this kind of holiday 
that they had um, where th- there was this kind of tour of uh, World War II kind of Holocaust related sites. And 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 there was a there was a kind of a re- revisionist historian there who was um, um, he's very well known in the UK, you know, undeniably smart individual, but has gone down this weird um, path um, uh, and now believes that. Hitler was a friend of the Jews, and um, he didn't know the Holocaust was happening. All this, all this stuff. So, um, but but you know, it was just as interesting as him were the people that were following him. You know, uh, and um, I was just you know just trying to figure out how is it that he could possibly believe that the Holocaust didn't happen? We were literally going through death camps, and, and, and you know, um, and um, and so what I th- found was really interesting. It became apparent that most of the people there, most of, they're all men. Most of the men there, um, their parents had served in World War II on the side of the Germans. And on the last night of the trip, um, there was this showing of the film Downfall. And if your um, viewers and listeners are familiar with the movie, but it's I actually I edited the trailer for Downfall. So I have the theatrical trailer for it. So I'm very familiar with it. I lived with that movie for months. Yes. Talk about a small world. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, you'll know that it's a hyper-realistic account of the mm-hmm. last. Six it or feels seven like days. It's basically you feel like you're watching a documentary. You're thinking to yourself it's at incredible. moments like, "How did they get cameras down here?" Oh wait, no, this is a movie. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's such a fascinating film. It's incredible. Uh, yeah, it really is. It's, I mean, it's probably. I mean, it's, I, it's, it's by far and away my favorite war film because because you really feel like you're there. You know, like. Um, but anyway, yes, yeah, it's, it's the last six days i think or maybe seven in, of hitler's life in the bunker so you know they were going to show the film and then do their talk about how what was wrong with it um but one of the guys who was on holiday um didn't want to go to see the film and the reason he didn't want to go to see the film is because his dad was in there with hitler and he would find it too upsetting so yeah so so, so that's that that to me was a real wow and and, and so you know i felt um, that I think a lot of those guys there listening to the talk and spending the week with them, it, it seemed to me that they loved their parents, you know, as we all do. They love their mums, they love their dads, but their mums and dads were Nazis. And so they, so, so, so they were brought up with this sort of state of inc- intense dissonance. Uh, on the one hand, they loved their mums and dads and they felt their mums and dads were good people. But on the other hand, Nazis are synonym for evil in our generation and for the generation they grew up in. So, you know, what we do when we're in those intense states of cognitive dissonance is is we just decide to believe what makes us feel better. And I think what made these men feel better was that the Holocaust is a myth. It never happened. They they couldn't allow themselves to believe that their parents had participated in such a monstrous act. So so so, so that was where I ended up. I, I I yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously I don't know for sure. Nobody can sort of literally open their brains up and figure out the cause of their beliefs. But 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 I felt like that was a you know, like when when you understand the science of belief, it, it felt like a credible answer because the other thing about these these guys was was that they weren't like two-dimensional hollywood villains that you know when you hung out with them they were just normal people and actually they were they were they were, they were very kind to me um even though they you know they, i was undercover they didn't know that i wasn't one of them um but they did know i was writing a book and and, and my sort of what i was trying to do was interview the guy who, the historian david irving who was leading the tour and it, when, when i sat down with irving for our first interview um, he ended up walking off 
because um, I, I think I made it too obvious how I actually felt about the thing. <laughs> and he got became suspicious. And then so he would give a lecture every evening and they were all asking these questions to him about his childhood and all this stuff. And then halfway through the week, one of them told me that they'd all got together and they felt sorry for me because I'd come all this way and hadn't got my interview. So they conspired to ask all these questions to him that would be helpful for my book. And it had this weird moment of, fuck, that's really nice. That's so nice of you, you know, to do that for me. Um, yeah, so, and, and, it's, and it's sort of, you know, that's but that's what we do, isn't it, in the world? It's the storytelling brain again, is that we make monsters of people. And for me, yes, I mean, they believe in things that we that we, that we consider monstrous, but but th- th- there were otherwise good people that had just made a terrible mistake. Uh, that's that That was my takeaway from that trip. Well, speaking of compelling stories, if we're talking about at the James Bond level, I would easily watch that movie of you going <laughs> undercover. Just this exact process as a film, I would totally watch that because this is absolutely fascinating. And I, I can't imagine being in that reality just like as, as far as having to, to be undercover in a situation which could become very dangerous. But I think that what is actually more interesting, and again, I don't, I don't want this to become a political discourse discussion because that's not my strong suit, nor is it the direction I want to go. But what we find universally through storytelling, and it's one of the vehicles um, that movies and film and TV has really done with the centralization of storytelling in the internet worldwide, is that we realize the more we learn about people that we disagree with or people we call enemies or villains, we have this realization of we're all way more similar than we are different. And that can be kind of scary. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree. And, 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 you know, for me, I, I'd rather read a novel about um, the guy whose dad was in the bunker and struggled with, you know, the fight between the love of his father and the reputation of the Nazis than I would some kind of two-dimensional story about some evil Nazi who goes around punching people because he's evil. You know, like, like the, the truth, um, you know, as you say, it's triggering for people. Um, uh, it, it upsets people, but I think it's more interesting and, and ultimately um, gets us much further than the, the two-dimensional cartoon version of this stuff. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I think a, a core par- part of uh, what you talk about in your book, not only if you are literally a writer or a storyteller storyteller for a living, or if this is about better constructing your own story, you have a very key point that I think we need to dig into, which is that compelling, profound, original plots emerge from character. And complex characters, not just a bullet point list. And we've talked a little bit about complex characters in the real world, how we can uh, tell their stories to understand the complexities of good versus evil. Um, But if we're just kind of getting back to the foundation of I want to tell a good story, whether I'm literally sitting down to write a script or it's about me telling my story, a lot of people argue you need to have a really good plot. You got to focus on story and then the character comes later and you will say character must come first. So how do we build a character, whether fictional or we're building our own character? Well, um, yeah, so the reason I say character has to come first, I mean, I'm going against Aristotle here. So so I've got some formidable uh, enemies who he argued that plot should come first. But but, but but if you look at the evolutionary history, it's, it's all about character because because what gossip is asking is that fundamental question of who is this person? You know, who is this person? Are they good or are they bad? And if you think about the, the most iconic, memorable stories, they, they tend to revolve around fantastic characters like Scrooge or David Brent or James Bond or, you know, like, um, you know, it's, it, 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 like, like Joker was a, was a film, recent film that was just, just 
brilliantly done in terms of characterization. So, 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 so you know, and you know, the, the secondary reason why I think character is the, is the most important is because, like, you can't figure out what your plot is until you understand your character. And so, to, the way to understand that is to think about how um, we are as real people in real lives, non-fictional characters. You know, the goals of our lives, which are the plots of our lives. Uh, the mistakes that we make, like the obstacles that we pursue, are all a function of our character. They're all a function of who, who we are. Um, so, you know, our, our stories emerge out of our character. And, and so that's how it is in real life. And, and, I, and I really think that's, how, you know, how it should be in story too. And, um, you know, the, the plot in really good stories and really compelling stories is specifically designed to um, challenge the character in a very kind of specific way, you know, is the way I write in the book is the, the plot is there to plot against the character. So if you think about like a classic film, like Godfather, the Godfather, you know, it centers around the Al Pacino character. Is it Michael? Um, who, who, you know, we meet him at the beginning and he says, uh, and they're at the wedding and um, his fiance um, is realizing oh my god there's all gangsters at this wedding what's going on michael and he says to her don't worry about that that's them that's not me and that's what the film is about that's not them that's not me and then and then because the, the plot hasn't started at this point we're just finding out who this dude is and what is what his thing is and then the plot begins as an attempt on his father's life so then he has to choose is it me like am i going to just back away and let this happen or am i going or, or am i going to allow my family to be brutalized in this way so everything in that story everything that happens in that story is testing that one core idea of that comes out of michael Corleone's character which is are you a gangster or are you just an ordinary guy like you say you are and of course we know the answer is no he's a gangster but that and that the entire plot revolves around that so so that's so that's an example of uh, you know, a really brilliant story that, that, that is absolutely expertly told because the plot is not just it's not just put together. What's what's the most exciting thing that could happen at this moment? I know an asteroid comes down, a dinosaur walks in, or whatever it is. It's all there specifically to test that one idea about his character. And you know, I, I, I mean, I've got lots of examples in the book, but 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 you know, so many of our great stories uh, take that form, and and that's why I think things like the Joseph Campbell model miss they miss the purpose of story and the purpose of story ultimately is gossip it's to find out who this person is are they a good person or are they a bad person and so the and the plot is there to do that my sincerest apologies for the interruption but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation not only is the following promo not an interruption but listening has the potential to change your life because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer let's learn a little bit more from ergo driven co-founder and ceo kit perkins creator of the topo mat the topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here 
than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Right, and the, the, the deeper version of that is not just who is this person on the screen or on the page, it's who am I? Yeah, And if we, if we go back to this uh, Godfather example for a second, because I love this, if you're a writer, whether it's fiction, whether you're telling your own story, you think to yourself, if I change one line of dialogue, what effect does it have down the line? Imagine we're in the wedding scene and she says, these are all gangsters. He's like, yeah, isn't it great? I'll be taking over the family eventually. You've taken yes. the tension out of three <laughs> movies like that well, with one it. line yeah. of dialogue because then there's no more tension. That's the, I mean, that's, I had never, thought, I mean, I've never thought about that. That's, I mean, it's a good way of thinking about it because, because as soon as you say that, this, you, you're right. You, you just deflate. It's like, oh, there's no story then. There's the, that's the story vanishes. You know, it's, it's not interesting anymore. You, you know, you know, it's, yeah, the, the, all the tension is gone uh, because the plot doesn't, doesn't have any work to do because he's already decided he's a gangster. So, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I mean, the, the other classic movie that I think is also interesting is Jaws because, because people miss this thing in Jaws they, because it's quite subtle, but, it, but it's definitely there. The whole film revolves around essential idea of character um you know you think jaws is a film about a shark but it's not it's a film about a man who's scared of the water and it's martin brody who's um we meet martin brody at the beginning he's the police chief and his job is to protect uh you know the safety of this beachside community um but he's terrified of the water like he's so phobic of the water that when he gets the car ferry over to the to the to the town he, he he stays in the car you know so so you know the whole film revolves around this guy's fear of the water being tested and you know it's very telling it's, it's always very telling what's the final beat of the movie before the credits roll because the final beat of the movie will tell you what that movie's been about because if it works because you'll have this em emotionally satisfying feeling of completion this subconscious thing you know in the godfather the final beat of the movie before the credits roll the very final thing you see is all the elder gangsters gathering in a in a, in a room with marco Corleone kissing his ring and crowning him godfather so that's what the movie's been about right but the final scene in Jaws is not the the, the, the shark blowing up. Everybody remembers. It's Brody swimming back to sea um, and, and saying, I used to be scared of the water. I can't imagine why. That's what the movie's been about. So even a, even a big, broad, best, you know, um, show like Jaws is actually, a, you know, is structured around character and his character that's driving the plot is this guy wrestling with his terrible fear of the water.
First of all, this idea, if you are a writer or a storyteller and understanding the connection between what is that core idea or belief about this person mm -hmm. that either they're trying to change consciously or they're trying to prevent changing mm -hmm. and connecting that one moment or dialogue or scene to the, the final image, that that's a huge revelation that I wasn't even aware of that I loved. But I want to extrapolate it even deeper to the world of my own story and I'm the character versus the plot. Mm -hmm. And to me, the analogy is, and you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be well, for me, my life is plot driven and it's all about the goals that I choose versus it's about the identity that I want to assume. And let me give you a, a very, uh, very simple example that most people can relate to. Well, I'm going to set the goal of I want to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Well, for most people, that's not very successful. But what if instead the goal was I want to see myself as a healthier person? They're actually very similar goals. One is character-based, one is plot-based, but it completely changes the way you approach the story and the plot points. And for me, in order to have a compelling and fulfilling story and be the character or something in a story that I want to actually do, I have to ask myself the question, not how do I avoid problems or challenges in my life? It's what obstacles do I want in my life? What problems do I want to create that are fun to solve? And it's not about here's just the plot points and the objective. It's what identity do I want to assume throughout this process? Is that a fairly accurate representation of character and plot in movies versus in yeah. my own life? Yeah, that, 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 that's right. Yeah. So, 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 so that, yeah, that, that's correct. So, so, so it's very much about don't focus on the, um, yeah, on, on the prize at the end. You, you focus on who, who do you want to be? Who do you want to become? And then when you focus on who do you want to become, as you say, the obstacles become fun and challenging and a test of who you want to become rather than, you know, when you, when you focus on, I want to lose weight, you're focusing on the obstacle rather than the kind of ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal of any story like subconsciously is becoming, you know, a, 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 a better person in your tribe. You, you know, like I always do at Star Wars, you know, when we meet Luke Skywalker being in Star Wars, he's, He's just this dude who works on a moisture farm and his nickname when he was a kid was Wormy. And then by the end of Star Wars, he's being paraded down this great hall with a big gold <laughs> medal around his neck. But, you know, that, that that's that, that's a model for life. That, that That's what we all want. And, and I think, as you say, focusing on the, on the who I want to become rather than on the obstacle, um, yeah, is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a really good principle. So here's where this gets really interesting is that we're talking about formulas and how we really want to focus more on character driving plot and plot not determining character and the hero's journey. There is no more quintessential example used across time and literature of the modern hero's journey than Star Wars. Yeah. So now we're talking about a formula that works, but from both directions. Right. It's not just they hit all the plot points and we have the call to adventure and, you mm. know, the the meeting with the mentor, like all these these steps that works. But it also works from your perspective of character and not plot. Yeah, it, it works. I mean, that, that, that's the thing about um, Campbell is that obviously it can work. There's there's loads of movies that follow that. I mean, I think I think I'm right. in thinking of The Godfather also follows that um, that that thing. But there's loads that don't. There's loads that there, 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 you know, the IMDb is littered with, <laughs> you know, four star reviews of movies that have, or TV shows that have followed the, 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 the 22 point plot to the letter and it's been dead and flat. And I, but, but I think that's because um, whether by instinct or genius, um, Star Wars, these first three movies anyway, hey, um, and um, 
you know, the Godfather, they had all that character change stuff going on it as well. Like they, they like they understood the, the the whole point of the plot is to is to transform a character. Um, so 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 you know, my five story beats in the book are: this is me and it's not working. Is that one? Act two is 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 there another way? They start experimenting with becoming a new form person that, that that kind of works against their wrong belief or you know, flawed idea about the world. Middle of the movie is this big transformation. Uh, act four is um, when when the the chickens come home to roost, and, and they're, you're really testing this idea. They're, you're testing this idea of do you you know have you really got the the courage and the backbone to to, to stand the pain that change is going to um, uh, make? And then Act five is the final test, the final kind of transformation. So you know, for me, that's a much simpler uh, way of understanding that classic five act thing that so many people have talked about over the years um but, and but what's what, what what i think works about that is that it that, that that it's kind of it's a character first kind of version and if you look at the godfather for example or jaws that it follows it perfectly even down to these very middle of those movies are these moments of you know transformation like at the beginning like a beginning of godfather he says i ain't a gangster and at the very middle is when he kills a cop and he kills a gangster so He's become one, you know. Yeah. So, it's, uh, in the middle of Jaws is when he goes out into the ocean and, and he becomes this person that is uh, not afraid of the water anymore. So, 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 so yeah. I, 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 you know, I think that when um, those movies follow, uh, you know, roughly that pattern, those are the ones that tend to work. What's really interesting about having discovered this one I did, which is now making this Amazon algorithm uh, downright creepy to me, is that when I was going through both Joseph Campbell's work, which, as we discussed, very dense and very difficult to get through. And for anybody that wants to get through it without having to read all the words, he did an interview with Bill Moyer on PBS. I got to admit, I mostly cheated and I watched that because the book was very heady for me. Then Christopher Vogler simplified it for the world of Hollywood and entertainment. But I kept looking at this thinking there has to be a simpler way to explain this. There's Aristotle's three acts. And I said to myself, what if I were to really break this down into five acts? How would I do it? Bing, there's your book. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And it didn't say that you broke it down into five acts, but all of a sudden I get to, I think it was part four. I don't remember where it was. I'm like, oh, it's the five act structure that I've been looking for. Um, I don't know what it was about the number five that stuck in my head, but I felt like Stories are complex enough that the Aristotle beginning, middle, end, it, yeah. it's, it's really hard to use that in a practical sense. But so is 12 steps is hard to, to have. it. And w- when I thought to myself, five seems like a good number, stumbled upon your book. I'm like, well, clearly this is a conversation <laughs> we need to have. And there is one key word that I think is so important to dig into next, specifically for those that are storytellers for a living, especially editors. It's very important for writers, but for those that edit like I do, the word is change and it's understanding how important change is in storytelling and guiding somebody's attention and using changes in story, whether it's a change in music or a change in sound effects or a change from wide shot to close up. Uh, so I really want to talk more, not just about change in the storytelling process, but mm. understanding how our brains perceive reality or their inability to perceive reality and how that translates to storytelling and the importance of change. Yeah, well, I mean, change is obviously critical to storytelling. In the book, I, call, I, I say, you know, a good story is a symphony of change, where this constant change is happening to keep our attention. Um, you know, one neuroscientist, um, Professor Sophie Scott, who's a sort of very well-known neuroscientist over here in the UK, 
Um, she told me that, you know, brains just don't work unless there are changes to detect. Basically, the brain is a prediction machine. It's predicting what's going to happen next. And it's and, and what it thinks is going to happen next, it puts in front of you. So it actually makes you see what's going to happen next. Um, but this this thing we have on the front of our brain, the face, it's basically a machine for detecting change. You know, if, when we detect any kind of, there's barely a millimeter on it that isn't dedicated somehow to the, to the detection of change. So, you know, temperature, something moves, we're not expecting, we hear something we're not expecting. You know, when that happens and we think it's relevant to us, you know, we move this change detecting machine off in the direction of the change to ask the question, what just happened? And what's going to, you know, and what's going to happen next? Um, so, 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 so that's, that, that, that's kind of how it works. And, and, so, and of course that's how a good story should work. Um, uh, the, the, there should be sort of continual, um, changes to, to keep people engaged. Um, uh, otherwise they're just going to get bored. You, you know, if you, if you imagine a story who, where the character is pretty much the same person at the beginning, versus the end and nothing has changed in between those two points it's going to be a pretty boring pretty boring story and i think that the the argument and i agree with that but an argument that i know that even christopher vogler makes that sometimes there are characters that don't change at all throughout the story but they're the instrument of the change in others so there's still yeah. some form of change and that's what we're compelled to compete watching to comp uh, yeah. continue watching and learn and see that change yeah, so in, in an archetypal story, the central character is, doing, is changing, but the characters around them don't necessarily have to change, but they're there to facilitate the change, to test them, to throw obstacles or to teach them things. The other example, of course, is sitcoms and um, soap operas. So in sitcoms and soap operas, characters don't change very much. Um, sitcoms especially, like if you think about John Cleese in Faulty Towers, he never changes. David Brent um, in The Office, in the, in the UK one at least, didn't change until the very last show uh, when he did change and that's what signals that the program is over that he finally changed and learned but i think a lot of the comedy comes from the fact that these characters don't change um uh you know they, they act in these predictable ways and, 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 it, and it's very funny but we are but what you're still seeing in sitcom and in soap opera are um uh you know, characters pursuing goals, very, very well specifically drawn characters pursuing goals and negotiating obstacles. In episodic shows, the obstacle is the whole point. You know, every show, every episode of Dallas where every episode of The Office or Faulty Towers or whatever it might be, there's, a, you know, an obstacle arrives in the world and, that's it, and then and the show uh, describes the characters dealing with that obstacle. And, and, and the other kind of telling quality of soap operas and sitcoms is, is they just don't end. They, they go on and on and on. They're designed to go on and on and on. And they don't end because the characters don't change. And, and that's not what we see in novels, of course, or films, is that, is that we, what we're looking for specifically in those, in those stories is a satisfying ending. And the satisfying ending comes when the character finally has learned or has failed to learn and dies and, you know, gets, you know, kicked out of the community or whatever it might be. And what's fascinating about this idea of change to me and this, we're going to get existential real fast. We're going to go beyond story <laughs> structures and how can I be a better sitcom writer to, you know, the perception of reality. But this idea, and I'm, I'm going to quote some of the information and, you know, it might be generalized or whatever, but essentially we're getting millions of pieces of information every single moment of our lives. And according to the stats, we're maybe aware of like 40 out of those 11 million pieces of information. So I did the math and I'm not so good at math, but that is four millionths of 1% of our actual, actual world that we consciously experience, which then begs the question, 
What the hell is reality if our brain is choosing 40 out of 11 million things any given moment? Because that that is going to change the story that we are telling and that we are experiencing. Yeah, of course. And, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about the storytelling brain, what you're experiencing is a story. And stories are always massive simplifications of reality. They, they really are. You know, um, what, one of the studies that looks at that kind of shows that effect, which I, th- which I think is really good, is that they call it the cocktail party effect. Is that the idea that when you're in a busy room full of people, um, you're just talking to somebody and having a conversation, and you're focused on the conversation. And then suddenly somewhere over in the distance, you've hit, you hear someone say your name and you look you look over so so what that shows is that the brain is monitoring every single one of those conversations but it's, it, but but until someone says your name until it comes relevant to your story it just keeps them out of your consciousness and then as soon as somebody says your name it pops it in it's you know puts it, it's like an editor it throws it into your to, to, to your story so, so 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 yeah it's kind of creepy when you think of it when you think about it like that all, all the things that we are um you know not conscious of i mean there's another very famous study in um psychology that, 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 that um lots of people know about that looks at this which is the invisible gorilla effect where you show people a video of um basketball players throwing a, a basketball around and, and your goal your goal is to count how many times it's thrown. I think that's what it is. And people are watching this video. And most people who watch the video don't notice that right in the middle of the video, somebody in a gorilla outfit walks onto the court, beats his chest like that, and then walks off again. Um, they don't see it because the, because the, the brain has got a, a, one particular goal in mind, which is to count the balls. It's focused on it. So it, it just edits that. It's not relevant to your task. So it edits that out of consciousness so it's quite extraordinary when you when you sort of drill down into the science of this stuff which again can get very very existential because we can ask the question well how much actual control do we have over our reality versus this lack of control and we're creating a sense of control because if we had any perception of the total complete lack of control we have we would literally fall apart and become basket cases and say what is the point of doing anything um and a lot of that again is based on we're making this choice whether consciously or more likely subconsciously here are the 40 things i'm going to pay attention to in any given moment and i don't see the giant gorilla in the middle of the floor pounding his chest right which again becomes very existential and the reason that i bring that up is I don't know whether or not I have any control over anything whatsoever. I perceive that I do. And mm. I try to make sure that the majority of the actions that I take in my life are um, directed towards things that I feel I have control over. I don't know if I do or not, but I feel that I do. And I have the perception of there are things in life that I can control and things that I can't control. I have a very limited amount of time and energy in my life. Why would I focus on the things that I know for a fact I can't control? I can at least trick myself into believing that maybe I can control these things. So that's where my time is going to go. But from what we've learned through the neuroscience, and I'm sure you can talk about this even more, is that by consciously choosing certain kinds of things for us to focus on, an example, the, the example that came to my mind would be a gratitude practice. Mm. Oh, well, it sounds all airy, fairy, and woo-woo, and yeah, yeah, gratitude practice. But from the, the lens that we're talking about this through, we're choosing the very specific things that we want to focus on and be grateful for them which then neurologically can increase our happiness and fulfillment factors. So kind of factors into this conversation of having at least a perception of control of our reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and I agree, you know, gratitude, it kind of, it does feel a bit there, um, but, but you know, the science is sound on it, you know, gratitude practice make people happier, you know? So, so yeah. And I think you're right. I think, I, I think a lot of that is, 
we, you know, we're choosing uh, what signals to input into our into our into our brain, and we, we, we're choosing what part of our world to kind of focus uh, the the attention on. And it's very easy. I mean, you know, we have a negativity bias generally. We're much more the brain naturally focuses much more on the negative because that's um, sensible for our survival. You know, like we need to fix fixate on the things that are going wrong because we might have to deal with the obstacles you know we have to deal with those obstacles so actually wrenching our attention away from all that doom and gloom and, and potential i mean, I mean we, we, we all, i mean you all know i mean 90 percent of the things we worry about never happen i mean you know it's it's, it's so it's such a truism it's banal but 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 we, we can't stop it and that and, and it's it kind of makes us miserable <laughs> but, the, but the brain isn't particularly interested in our happiness the brain's interested in keeping us alive and, and surviving so it focuses on those obstacles so that so that's why i think gratitude practice you know doesn't appear to be so powerful because it it kind of breaks that it breaks that pattern Exactly. And like I said, I can't answer the question whether or not I actually have any control over my reality. But for now, I'm going to go with the choice of I perceive that I do. And I want to focus on asking questions or going in a direction that are going to tell the story that I want to tell instead of focusing on all the things that are negative. And it's just it's so easy to get wrapped up in that. And the reason I bring all this up is there is a core fundamental concept that I've been talking about for decades. I didn't come up with it, that this is years and uh, years or decades old, specifically in the world of learning filmmaking and learning editing. And I was fascinated that you talked about the exact same thing in the larger context of both storytelling and just our perception of reality. So I'm going to give a little bit more context to this, which is that I have uh, taught uh, film editing and filmmaking at USC in their filmmaking program. I've just kind of done it independently, but that's always teaching it to people that kind of know the craft. What I find really interesting is when you have somebody like my father-in-law that's a lawyer and asks, so explain to me what you do, right? I can't actually explain the nuances of what I do because most people in the industry don't understand what editors do. But there's a term that I use to get it to click for anybody in about two minutes. It's the Kuleshov effect. This to me is the foundation of all filmmaking and editing. And I would love to geek out on better understanding of the Kuleshov effect with somebody who brought it up in a totally different context because I love talking about this. So this is, um, I think the context I wrote about the collision effects in the book is about cause and effect, about mm -hmm. how, how the brain understands, you know, one just one of the many components of the storytelling brain is, is that we understand the world as a series of causes um, and effects. So, so, so they've done these really sort of interesting studies comparing the behavior of infant children to chimpanzees, um, who obviously are one of our closest relatives, uh, evolutionarily speaking. And um, they the, the give the babies and the chimps is game to play which is stacking these wooden blocks and if they stack the wooden blocks they get a little treat um but one of these blocks has got um a lead weight hidden in it so it makes it fall over all the time and what they find is that the chimp just keeps relentlessly trying to make the block stand up over and over again but the infant children and these are pre-verbal children then you know they're very young they start picking the block up and they start examining it trying to figure out What's causing this, you know, and what's going to, you know, what's going to happen next if I do it? So this understanding of the world as patterns of causes and effects is really um, fundamental to the storytelling brain. And 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 all, all good stories um, 
understand causality. They understand that a character is on this causal journey of one thing triggers the next thing, triggers the next thing, triggers the next thing. This thing happens because of that, because of that, because of that, and not and then. So in, in badly constructed stories, this thing happens and then something else happens and then something else happens. And we find those really hard to concentrate on because they're, they're, they're not causal. And I was actually reading, um, there's a story, there's a, there's a, I think it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning short story writer called George Saunders, who also teaches storytelling. And I was reading his book um, last year, and he says that there are two things that tell him whether his writers are ever going to get published. The first one is how they feel about being edited and rewriting. But the second one is understanding causality. If they understand causality, they're going to get published. So, you know, it, it's a really big deal for storytellers. It's hard to do. Um, even films that don't get made um, somehow... Uh, films that do get made, sorry, and pu- books that do get published, sometimes that, that, that have very poor causality and they're therefore confusing. Um, and the cooler show effect um, um, is exploits that, um, that 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 understanding that every, that one thing is linked to another. It's, it's, it's when you show two contrasting images. But I'm sure you can give us a. Uh, and, and, and make a conclusion. Yeah, so about, l- l- let me break it down, like because I want to take your understanding of it and the way you explain it with the way that I do, because I think the intersection of those two is both fascinating, but it also is the key to unlocking how can I become a better storyteller, writer, editor, or even just apply this to my own life. So the simplest version, like let's just say that I were explaining this to my father-in-law who asks, what do you do as an editor? And I've actually had this conversation and he listens. So, you know, you know, welcome to my show. Um, but essentially the, the study was done by, uh, filmmaker Kuleshov, who essentially took an image of a man's face, just a fairly blank, neutral expression, and then from there cut to or juxtaposed it with three separate images. The first one was a baby. The second one was a pretty woman. And the third was a coffin. And when you show these three different juxtapositions to different groups and you ask the audience, what is this man feeling? They juxtapose the feelings based on the edit, right? So if you go from a bland, neutral face to baby. Oh, well, you know, he's happy or he's proud or whatever the emotion might be. Then you go from picture of his face to picture of this woman. Ooh, he's energized or attracted or whatever it might be. Picture of face to coffin. He's very sad. They didn't realize they were looking at the exact same face. Yeah, and again, and, and yes, that's right. And it's because of causality. So, so, so you automatically assume that the one thing has caused the other. So the baby, the dead body, the woman has caused that expression. So, so then that tells you what the expression says. So, so yeah, so it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting um, effect. And as I say, and it, and it really sort of, as you say, drills down really into the heart of, you know, how the storytelling brain works. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make 
yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, and uh, going even deeper into cause and effect, this was a study I wasn't aware of. Uh, this was so interesting to me, and I'm just going to start by saying two words, and I want you to describe the study. And you probably know what they are because we're talking about the cause and effect section. Yeah. But if you just give two words to people, they're going to tell a story. Banana, vomit. <laughs> that's right. What's going so on? This, so this is a, an experiment that's sort of proposed by Daniel Kahneman, um, the very famous um, social psychologist and author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, yeah, and he, he says that, you know, if you, if you just show the people the word bananas and vomit, they automatically begin construct this sketchy scenario in which the bananas cause the vomit you know so 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 those words have nothing in common there's no reason why they should be linked but you automatically assume um you know one after the other another version of this experiment is, is where they show people um you you sit people down in front of a screen of randomly moving dots and every time if you if if a, if a human looks at those dots for long enough they'll become convinced that there's that one dot is chasing the other and then it's hiding. They'll build these causal stories around these dots that are actually moving completely randomly. Yeah, and uh, again, like this to me is, if you understand this one concept of cause and effect, it unlocks the entire world of storytelling. And I've seen this over and over and over where I've worked with other editors or other writers in the room or whatever it might be, where this is a concept that they don't consciously understand or can explain or can apply. So they'll just take a bunch of random shots and throw them together and say, hey, it's a montage. We've got these shots. We'll put the music under it. It's just pumping. <laughs> and people are like, this isn't working. We don't understand why it's not working. And yeah. I always say it's because you don't understand what is my thought and what am I feeling when this one shot comes up and how does it lead to my feeling of the next? And whenever somebody asks me, and this is usually within the context of people that do editing for a living, they say, what's the most important core skill or understanding of how to be a great editor? It's not, well, you need to be really good with your technology or your tools or whatever. It's you're doing two things. If you can do these two Two things well, you'll have a, an entire career and you'll be very successful. Number one, you understand where somebody's attention is at any given moment. So I can direct their attention through the juxtaposition of images and changes. And number two, I know what they're feeling while I have their attention. Mm. I know those two things and I can control them or I have the perception of that control. That's going to make me a better editor and a storyteller. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I, my best friend is a screenwriter and he he worked on the Elvis movie mm -hmm. with Baz Luhrmann. And um, I was having dinner with him a couple of nights ago and I, and I said, oh, you know, I sort of apologizing for not having seen the movie. And I said, oh, I'm going to, I want to wait and see it 
on the IMAX screen. And he said, I wouldn't ever go and see a movie on an IMAX. And I said, why? He said, well, because the job of the director is to tell you where to put your attention. And on the IMAX, it's so big. You, 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 you don't know where to put your attention. And I thought, oh, that, that's a that's a pro, you know, who, that, that's really interesting. And I, and I immediately sort of recognised that he was, that's correct. Yeah, that's why IMAX doesn't really work. To it's so funny because <laughs> that never occurred to me, but I hate watching movies in IMAX. I hate yeah. it. Like if, yeah. if it's a, if it's about the sensory experience, like I considered seeing Maverick and IMAX, I'm like, mm. just for the sensory overload, that would be a fun experience. But for actually getting into the story and the characters, yeah. I hate yeah. IMAX movies because I yeah. don't know where I'm supposed to look. And I physically yeah. have to yeah. move my head to see the entire <laughs> yeah. image. And if it's yeah. not contained, then I know that all of the work that in that example, uh, editor Eddie Hamilton was doing day in and day out to direct my attention and maximize the quality of my experience. The screen destroys that. I've just never been able to consciously understand yeah. why I hate it. That was so yeah. useful to me. I appreciate that yeah it was, was to me too as soon as you said it i just it just one of the it just oh, that just makes perfect sense yeah that just makes perfect sense yeah, yeah that's amazing um so the i just want to emphasize one more time for anybody that either does this for a living or we're even talking about our own stories it all starts in my mind with understanding the concept of the kuleshov effect because how we juxtapose and combine certain things it's the combination of them that makes the story and the emotion. It's not the two individual pieces or 10 individual pieces or whatever it is. It's the combination of all of it, which without, again, getting too existential or going off on a tangent is also a conversation that I had with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the author, Joey Cafone, but he wrote a book called The Laws of Creativity, which is huh. essentially breaking down creativity into a series of laws and a science rather than this nebulous esoteric art form that doesn't make any sense. And the big thing that we talked about was the idea of creativity is the combination of things, not the inception of new things or new ideas, hmm. which to me, again, is so central to storytelling. And if we were to, again, go off on a different tangent, I think it's one of the reasons that creatives suffer from imposter syndrome. Well, my ideas aren't original. This isn't a new character or a new setting or whatever, but it's how you uniquely combine them and take yeah. people on that journey of change and tell that story with ununique elements in a unique combination. I agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that's quite a, yeah, I, I think that's right. I, th I think a lot of creatives have that anxiety of, oh, it's all been done before. It's all been done. But there's, there's a myth of pure creation. But, you know, there's, there's no such thing as pure creation. It's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true that everything is remix. Um, but, but it doesn't mean that th th things can't be profound and interesting and original just because they have elements in common with other other things and, and, and you know and, and i think there are fundamental rules to art you know there are fundamental rules to yeah you know these things um you know basic um rules you know like things like something's got to change you know like uh, you know so so, so 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 things are always and, and and you know we have a human you know we share human dna we we share we, we share you know basic understandings of how the human world works um that there's universal uh, you know, we're universally interested in fairness. We're universally interested in selflessness. We're universally interested in status. We're universally interested in moral character. Um, we're universally interested in how the world works. So, 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 so you know, successful stories are always going to, you know, converge upon similar ideas, similar structures. It's just, it's inevitable because they're being consumed by human brains, which also have similarities in common.
Mm-hmm. And to add to that list of the things that we are so universally compelled by in stories, whether in fictional stories, in other people's stories or in our own, comes back to something we talked about a little bit earlier that to me is really the whole reason I wanted to have this conversation is about setting goals and the direction either of our characters' lives or of our own. And you say specifically that our goals give our lives order, momentum, and logic But there's a deeper level to this, and this is what I really want to dig into now, is that we are our own personal projects. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) Well, personal projects is a concept that was, I think it was created by this guy, Professor Brian Little, who's, he's American or Canadian. I think he's Canadian. But anyway, he teaches at Harvard. He teaches personality science at Harvard and at Cambridge in the UK. So he, he knows his stuff. And so he's been studying what he calls personal projects all, all his life. And, and, and so he, you know, our personal projects are the, are, are the things we're trying to do with our lives. You know, it could be if there's something as banal as teaching a dog to sit or something as important as trying to rid the world of, you know, racism and homophobia or, or whatever, it else, whatever else it is. And so Brian Little says, as far as he's concerned, that, that, that you know, our, our personal projects are so... Um, central to our lives they're central to our our identity that we are our personal projects that that's who we are and when i interviewed him as i say in the book i asked him you know are are our personal projects sort of analogous to uh, the the plot uh, you know plot in a novel are we like heroes in a novel pursuing plots and he said yeah that's exactly right that's that's exactly what they are So, so 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 yeah so you know that's why you know i said when we started talking that 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 you know, again, it's another part of the story setting brain that we that we are running multiple plots at once, usually, um, as people. You know, we, we have these goals and 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 the goals um are incredibly important to us. And the goals are products of our character and the obstacles too are, you know, are, are things that we try and overcome and 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 we become better people by figuring out how to overcome these obstacles. We become more heroic when we figure out how to do that. And the reason I wanted to bring this up, there's a few things that I want to dig into. But the first one is my endless pursuit of understanding how do we find fulfillment in our work? Because I think that with as much as our entire first world culture has become obsessed with work and productivity and getting things done, that we've lost a sense of fulfillment and creative connection to it. And this idea of we are our personal projects really made me think more about, uh, again, answering this question, why am I so compelled by storytelling, first of all? But secondly, why is it that I can do the same job? One uh, story I'm telling is a dream job. I'm doing the exact same thing on a daily basis, and it's a nightmare job. The only difference is the stories that I'm telling. Mm. And this idea of us being our personal projects really hit me. I'm like, oh, we're, we're storytellers literally to the point of a fault where if we are not engaged in the stories or the goals or whatever it might be, we lack fulfillment. And you talk about how being more connected or fulfilled by the work or by the story literally can impact the quality of your health. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, and a lot of this comes down to a lot of this comes down to sort of two very fundamental human needs, and 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 the, and then the human needs are for, are for belongingness and for status. We're so tribal. I mean, you know, because we're tribal, we, we, we're compelled to crave belongingness and status. Belongingness because, evolutionarily speaking, we had to pursue acceptance by our tribe. And status, we had to prove ourselves useful to that tribe. And when you prove yourself useful to a tribe, you rise in status and your rewards increase. 
So even in pre-modern groups, hunter-gatherer groups, the more status you have, the better food you get, the more food you get, the safer your sleeping status, the greater your access to your choice of mates. Everything gets better. And that that's true in all human communities. Um, you know, ancient and modern, Eastern and Western, wherever you go, status equals prizes. So, um, and, and, and I think, you know, the stories that we tell reflect that. Um, you know, we, we tell stories about connection, status. That's that's that, that that those are the subjects of human stories, and you know, survival is the other is the other is the other thing. And I think when we talk about the fulfillment in in the, in the stories of our lives, it depends on um, the extent to which we do receive those basic rewards of community and status. If we are sort of strongly identified with our job, and we get a lot of personal status out of it. Or, and we feel that other people um, award us status for success in that job. We'll, in, we'll enjoy it. We'll get a lot out of it. It's, it's not related to money. I mean, money's one way you can measure status, but there are loads of other ways you can measure status. Um, and, you know, to, to a probably slightly lesser degree with jobs um, community, you know, if, if we feel that we are um, enjoying an increased sense of connection with other people, that's also going to be a reward that's that's how it depends i mean you know i had this experience myself when i was still a journalist and um when the global financial crisis happened it became really hard to make money so as a, so as a freelance journalist i started i sort of taught myself photography and started offering these kind of packages of i'm gonna do words and pictures you know and i had some success i had i, I, shot, I had some magazine covers i had an exhibition of my photographs um but but other photographers never gave me any they just saw me this interloper, you know, A and B, I just wasn't, you know, I had some success, but I wasn't that good. When, when I compared my work to the seasoned photographers, it's mediocre. Um, so I, I kind of gave it up and the people around me were like, why have you given any photography? You were good at that. You had an exhibition. And, and, and at the time I couldn't answer the question. I was just like, oh, I'm just not getting anything out of it. But it was, I was earning money. <laughs> like it was, it was, I was, I, it was working. Um, and and now I know what I know. It's because I just wasn't getting the status. Like, like photo editors didn't take me seriously. Um, other photographers didn't take me seriously. And so I just thought, Oh, what's the point? You know, so 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 so, so yeah, it's um uh, I think I think especially in the world of work, you have to feel like you're earning that fundamental prize of status. Uh, and if you do, then you're going to be engaged in your job, you're going to enjoy your job, and the job is going to be fulfilling, even if it's not earning you particularly much money. But if that were true, just to play the devil's advocate, wouldn't we find a, a direct correlation between those that are at the highest level of their fields, whether there's material wealth with it or otherwise, and their level of fulfillment and happiness? I would argue oh. that, especially in our industry, there's an inverse yeah. correlation. The more miserable, horrible, wretched human beings are usually the ones that are near the top because they're not connected to the purpose of their work. And it is more about the attainment of wealth and materialism and status. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I understand the argument, but 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 there's a couple of things there. The first thing is that I, that I wouldn't uh, like. I I think st status gives you a sense of meaning in your job, but it doesn't necessarily make you happy. Like mm. the idea that status makes you happy is not true. So status makes you happy in the moment. You know, like if you, when you win an award, um, when you uh, you know get a book published or a film made or whatever, or you know, when you're clip shown at the Oscars or whatever. For a moment, you feel like it's incredible. It's like a drug. You know, you feel a huge rush. But of course, as we all know, then the next thing is, okay, now I've got to beat that. 
they've got you know stasis kind of goes it runs away you know like you can't contain it so so it's maddening it's like a it is like heroin status like you get this here but you're always chasing the next one and the next one and the next one the other reason that that the super successful people uh, aren't any happier because of their status particularly um is because we we don't compare ourselves with the whole world we compare ourselves with our peers so so elon musk isn't feeling amazing every day because he's so high status compared to a warehouse worker at amazon he's feeling tortured every day because he's comparing himself to jeff bezos and um you know or, you know the legacy of steve jobs or whoever else he's comparing himself to St- status gives our lives meaning because it gives us a goal to pursue but it's a but it's a um it, it it's a chimera we never get there you never you, you never earn the crown you know, like like it's a it's a trick the brain the brain plays on you. Mm-hmm. And the the reason I wanted to bring that up is that I'm uh, uh, in the endless search of understanding and finding more of a balance between the two words doing and being. Yeah. And if we talk about specifically the story structure and this idea of we want to make sure that the plot or the goals we're working towards are driven by character and motivations especially if we're talking about ourselves and movies, it's different. Like we don't want to watch somebody being for 90 minutes, right? That's not going to be a whole lot of fun. Maybe as an art house film, but watching somebody be for 90 minutes, not terribly interesting, but I mm. think that there's a lot of value in learning how to better tell your own version of your story where yes, it's character driven. Um, it's so much more based on here's the identity that I want to assume here are the plot points or the goals that get me there. But so mm. far, all we're talking about is doing more and achieving more and hitting all these goals. Yeah. And I just know the right now, now for the last 10 minutes my poor podcast producer debbie's head has her hair is on fire she's like why are we only talking about goals how do we interject more being into our stories i mean if we're talking about east versus west this idea of stories and character being driven by goals buddhists would say well that's the root of all suffering is the attainment of trying to get something else rather than accepting the reality as it is so how, how do we start to to play with this dichotomy well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because even Buddhists have goals. Um, you, you know, you want to be reincarnated as a good thing, not a bad thing. I mean, you know, just the, the world of Buddhism is just so hierarchical and status driven. It's 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 no better than any other religion, as far as I can see. You know, with its different realms of reincarnation and and so on. So yeah, it's, it's difficult to separate out the, the pursuit of goals. Um, from the human condition because it's it's baked into the human condition. You know, it's a fundamental part of the human operating system. Uh, And if it wasn't, we wouldn't have civilization. We wouldn't have healthcare. We wouldn't have science. We wouldn't have electricity. Like, you know, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's both. But, 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 you know, it's it's essential to to, to our kind of, you know, state as beings and, and that's why you know compelling stories are you know often about the pursuit of goals you know the the overcoming of obstacles kind of in in pursuit of goals i mean as i write in the book there are there are there are kind of forms of storytelling in in especially in japan that that, that don't have um that, that aren't sort of got aren't goal driven well um, and it's interesting this is exactly yeah. where i wanted to go next it's like you read my mind you talk about how storytelling is very different in western culture yeah. versus eastern culture and just to wrap up this uh previous one if anybody were to say that i don't have goals well then your goal is to not have goals it's a paradox yeah. that you you can't yeah. get yourself out of that yeah. circle um but i the reason i put this in here is i just want to make it clear that i don't think the only way you can attain fulfillment is by constantly achieving more and more and more and there right. has to be being wrapped up I mean, into it but yeah, i think it's 
it's really yeah, important yeah. to dig deeper into this idea of the goals in Western culture and Eastern culture can be very different, specifically in the way that they tell their stories. People listen to this all over the world. I have multiple students that are in China. I've got a student that's in Japan. I've got people in Eastern Europe, Western Europe. And for this idea of I'm the hero and I'm the center of the story and it's about pursuing yeah. my goals, entire cultures would be like, I don't get it. It's not even interesting to me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so the broad difference, I mean, I wrote about this in most depth in my book, Selfie, that, the, the, you know, the, the, the broadest difference between East and West is the level, is, is the extent to which we are group focused. And so as, as we've already talked about, all humans are, are groupish. Um, but in the West, we have this emphasis on the individual much more. So our stories are much more likely to be about an individual all conquering hero, you know, from the days of ancient Greece, which is, you know, reckon to be the kind of birthplace of Western thought and Western individualism. You know, it's, it's stories about heroes slaying monsters. Um, in East Asia and in Africa too, um, it's far more groupish. And that's actually the default state of human beings. You know, it's, it's us in the West that are weird. Um, so it's kind of group first thinking. So the most, so, so the, 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 the um, the, the agent of change in East Asia is the group much more than the individual. And, and, but, but you still have goals, but your goal is to be a good group member. So in my book, the status game, you know, I read, I read a very interesting paper about um, status pursuit in, in East Asia. And they were talking about Japan and, and, and the concept of face, you know, they have the concept of face in, in, in East Asia. And so they, they said that um in Japan, if an individual is picked out of a group at work for praise and said, you're doing really well, you're, doing, you're the best in the group. Um, of course, in the West, we'd be going, yeah, I'm the best in the group. I'm the king, you know. Uh, but but in in Japan, it's deeply shaming uh, because what, 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 what you've done is you've made the rest of the group feel bad. And so what that person will tend to do in Japan is um, deliberately put in a worse performance at work for a couple of weeks in order to restore the, you know, the, the, the coherence and the harmony in the group. So, so they still have a goal. The, the goal is the coherence and the harmony of the group. Um, but it's just a very different goal to the one that we're used to in the um, West. And this is where Eastern and Western stories are often um, different. Uh, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of strand of Eastern storytelling, which which is all about harmony. The, the, you know, trying to figure out how to achieve harmony, the harmony between kind of conflicting forces. Um, so there's a you know there's a very famous um, Chinese film where there's been a murder, and um, you, you're just given um, I forget what it's called now. But it's a very famous film. You 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 you're just given the different wit different witnesses say Rashomon. That's it, Russian man. One of, one of my, I was going to bring this up anyway. Yeah, one yeah, of my favorite yeah. films for this specific reason. Yeah, and you know, the point of that is that is that you've got all these conflicting accounts of what actually happened, and, and it's your job to figure out, you know, what actually happened, how to achieve harmony the, uh, between these conflicting forces. So there's a very very east eastern way of thinking that is. I mean, I interviewed a, a South Korean anthropologist and he said that you, you, you guys in the west tend to find these stories completely boring and pointless you don't understand them um because, because they, they, they're just not good they don't seem they don't appear to be goal driven but the goal is the pursuit of harmony yeah well uh again these are all things that we could dive into incessantly all of the various books all of the various concepts and circling back to 
I wouldn't even know where to start. And you and I are going to have to do this seven more times to cover your body of work. But having said that, um, I feel very good. And I've, I've learned a lot myself about this, uh, better understanding what it means to talk about the science of storytelling versus the art form or the craft of it. Uh, and I really, really hope that this is tremendously beneficial to other editors, directors, producers, writers specifically to understand how do I create compelling stories and compelling plots and characters. But is there anything amongst either this specific book or your general body of work where you're just like, how come we haven't talked about this? Why didn't you ask me about this? Is there anything that you're just like, I got to get this out of my system before we wrap it up? There isn't, Zach. No, I, you know, we, we, I think we've had a really good chat about the science of storytelling. Obviously, I've got other books, but but this is, you know, this is this is the one that's probably the dearest to my heart and the, and the one, the subject that I'm most interested in. So. I've had a great time, you know, chatting with you about it. Thank you for your interest. Yeah, absolutely. So for anybody that is listening that's had some of the same aha moments as me that they want to dive deeper, um, obviously, you can just go to Amazon and put in science of storytelling because it's the algorithm that brought me to you in the first place. But the more important question is where can they find you and your body of work if they want to dig in deeper? Well, um, my website is, is willstore.com. Um, my, that's S-T-O-R-R, um, my surname. Um, so you can find out about my books um, My books there. Um, as I said, there's The Unpersuadables, which is about crazy belief. Then there's Selfie, which is about Western culture, Western versus Eastern culture. And, and um, they, they all are kind of centered really on the idea of the storytelling brain. And my latest book is The Status Game, which is looks at, we, we touched upon that in our chat, looks at the importance of, um, status and, and again that goes into you know the, the storytelling brain too about how lots of you know like, like one of the things that kind of drives the subconscious life of so many of our stories is the status of the hero going up and the status of the villain going down so so yeah, there's, there's stuff in all of those books if you're interested in the, the storytelling brain. Yeah, I have a feeling that I'm probably going to be going into your larger body of work because I found just this one book, Revelatory. Now that I know you have all these other books, this, these may end up on my shelf as well. Just not as cleanly organized as your bookshelf. Um, anybody <laughs> that's listening to this only, go on YouTube and just take a quick look at that bookshelf behind Will. This guy's clearly a reader and a well-organized one. They're, they're not organized though. Like, I spent hours looking at At least they're facing book. In the right direction, yeah, right? That that's a big step forward from if I were to show you my uh, my bookcase. Um, so just that alone is is impressive. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, especially on your Friday evening, just to talk shop and story and personality and characters and the entire meaning of life and existence. Uh, this has been a tremendous pleasure. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Zach. I've had a good time. Thank you. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.